Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I am your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto. In the spirit of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada, I, Donna Paris, solemnly pledge to learn more about Indigenous peoples and issues to not perpetuate stereotypes in my conversations or observations, to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's 94 calls to action, to read the 231 calls for justice in the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and to actively encourage ongoing support of National Indigenous Peoples Day every June 21st and National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. And you can find this pledge at Indigenous Corporate Training Inc. at www.ictinc.ca. I give gratitude and thanks. I'm so pleased to be here today with Cheryl Fogel. Cheryl was born in Calgary, Alberta in 1956. She is descended from Black Oklahomans who settled in Maidstone, Saskatchewan in 1910. She also has ancestors who lived in Amber Valley and Campsie, Alberta. Cheryl is a writer, a playwright, a filmmaker, a storyteller, a journalist, and the author of three young adult books and the much celebrated memoir, Pouring Down Rain, A Black Woman Claims Her Place in the Canadian West. Her work over the last 30 years has focused on the lives of Western Canadians of African descent. In 2020, her National Film Board feature documentary, John Ware Reclaimed, received the Alberta Feature Audience Choice Award at the Calgary International Film Festival. She is the 2021 recipient of the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Outstanding Artist Award, the Calgary Black Chambers Black Achievement Award, and the Doug and Lois Mitchell Outstanding Calgary Artist Award. Welcome, Cheryl Fogo, and thank you for sitting down with me today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Tell us about the journey of your ancestors to Alberta, where they started from, what the journey was like, and what life was like once they got here. That's a great question because, of course, they were part of a movement. So their journey holds parallels with approximately 1,500 other Black people who came to Canada, to the same part of Canada, at the same time for the same reasons. So in some ways, the journey was a general journey. But of course, in other ways, it was a specific journey. And my ancestors had their own reasons for coming. I had two ancestral families that came as part of that movement. The Smiths, who are my grandfather's people, and the Glovers, who are my grandmother's people. And the Smiths had been living in Tulsa at the time that they came. And as I'm sure you know, approximately 10 years, a little less than 10 years after that movement, the Tulsa massacre happened. And that centered around a community known as Greenwood. And many of the businesses that were on Greenwood Avenue were attacked as part of that massacre. And I discovered later on in my life, in my research, that my grandfather's family, the Smiths, were living on Frankfort Avenue, which was one block over from Greenwood. So I think the events that they were facing at that time in their lives, the rise in 
anti-Black hatred that was fomenting in that part of the world probably was part of the reason that they came, although they never talked specifically about anti-Black racism in Tulsa. They talked about anti-Black racism in Oklahoma in general. So I think it was very widespread and not limited to Tulsa. But there was a lot of violence that had happened in the communities where the Smiths were, including Chandler, Oklahoma, which was where my grandfather was born. The Glover family, I know less about in terms of what were the actual details of their daily lives, because my great-grandfather Glover, who came, was quite young when he came, and very few of the Glovers came. So I have less information about what were the day-to-day events of their lives like in Oklahoma. The underpinnings of what brought them here in the first place are really relevant. And both the Smiths and the Glovers were religious people who believed that there had to be somewhere that was safe for them. The conditions in Oklahoma at that time were truly intolerable. They had already left the places where they were from to go to Oklahoma before it was a state because they were freedom-seeking people, safety-seeking people. And when they came up to this part of the world, they journeyed by train, for starters, and then by wagon, both families. So my Aunt Daisy, who was a wonderful scribe, who kept a lot of details of what the Smith journey was like, talked about how it was piecemeal. You know, first her father came along with a couple of his sons, And then he sent for some of the others. So they came in stages between 1910 and 1912. She describes what that was like for them to be separated for those time periods, what it was like for her as a very little girl to arrive in a place called Dalmeny, Saskatchewan, and both what the train journey was like and then what the wagon journey was like. My grandmother described for me in person what it was like to make that journey by train and then also the wagon journey, which she said was awful. They ran into a lot of marshy territory. At one point, she and her mom, my grandmother was a very, very young girl at the time. They had to get out and push the wagon through these marshes because the wheels were stuck in the mud. So we often think about what it was like for them when they came. But I appreciate your question about what was the journey like? It was tough. As I'm sure you also know, people were stopped at the border by authorities who were not happy to see them. So they endured that harassment and physical exams and hostility at the border. And then, you know, had to keep coming through with their wagons and endure that hardship as well. And then arrive in places where there were no homes. They had to erect homes very quickly. Often sod huts were their first homes. I got a chance to see a sod hut in person just a couple of days ago, and believe me, not pleasant. These were large families. Their initial arrival would have been very, very difficult. And then they worked together to build cabins and build the churches and the schools and that kind of thing. And their community was incredibly important to their survival. The Smiths, because Aunt Daisy was a wonderful scribe, she also describes the racism that they experienced after they came. 
And that was racism that was embedded in the systems that were in place in the schools, in the policing of the communities, in some of the neighboring farms. You know, they met some wonderful people and they were welcomed by some, but very much so not by others. They encountered people who were members of the Ku Klux Klan, which was quite active in Saskatchewan and Alberta at that time. So a lot of hardship. It must have been very discouraging for many. They were running away from something, as you said, and they had hopes for this new life. Were they surprised to find what they found? Some of them were. I think the deeper their belief was in the notion of a promised land, the more surprised they were. Others were more cynical about the world. And I think for some of them, especially maybe those who chose Amber Valley, that was almost as distant as you could get from where they were. It was a very distant part of the world. And I think some of them thought they would like to go to an isolated corner to start over again. So I think the level of violence and hatred that they experienced for some was quite a surprise. As for the hardship of the life, yes, I think so. Someone was describing the posters that were used by the Canadian government to attract people, and they showed these very idyllic scenes of farm and prairie life with these nice ranch houses and waving fields of grain in the background and happy cows. And uh, especially for the people who arrived in the winter, what a harsh introduction that would have been. So I think for some, both the hardness of the climate and the land and the racism was a surprise. For others, I think the racism was not unexpected. They just had been through too much and were perhaps too savvy and cynical about the way the world worked to be really surprised by that. And were there some that went back? Absolutely. In the Smith family, in my two origin families in this part of the world, several of them went back. Several of my grandfather's brothers went back and one of his sisters. In the Glover family, my great-grandfather himself went back. He did not stay. So there were fewer Glovers that came and he didn't stay. About half of the Smiths went back and among the other people, their friends and neighbors, yes, many went back. What were some of the names of the other families? In Saskatchewan, the best known two families were the Mazes and the Lanes, but there were also Pertites, there were Joneses, there were Williamses in Saskatchewan, and I'll think of some of the other names. I mean, those were a few. In Alberta, there were many families. Some of the bigger and best known families were the Bowens, the Maps, Mrs. Brody, the famous midwife of Amber Valley, so the Brody family, the Tolls family, who were the people that donated the land to build the school, and that's why it's known as Toll School. Oh, so many families. I could probably go on and on, but you get the picture. <laughs> I get the picture. So you knew your Smith grandparents, your grandfather and your grandmother. Did you know them well? Oh, yes. Very, very well. They were very influential in my life. In fact, I knew my Glover great-grandfather. William Glover lived into his 90s. And because he was younger than my Smith great-grandfather, he was actually 
alive in my lifetime and lived until I was 10. So even though he hadn't stayed in Canada that whole time, I actually knew him. I have a photograph of him holding me as a baby. But yes, my grandmother, Arena, Arena Glover Smith, and my grandfather, George Willis Smith. Yes, they were very important figures in my life. Tell me about them. Well, my grandma was kind of perfect. I mean, I think a lot of people had close relationships with their grandmothers. And she was very loving, very funny, funny in a way that made her real. So she wasn't angelic. Sometimes she could say things that were maybe a little bit cutting, but that were funny. But overall, she just was a love machine. She is so beloved among her future generations that I believe there are nine people in my family who have been named Arena or some form of it. And these are third, fourth, and fifth generations past her death. So her legend and her heritage and her legacy lives on to that extent. My granddaughter is named Arena. My six-month-old granddaughter is named Arena. Of course, my kids never got to meet my grandma, but her blood runs that strong. My grandpa, he had a very deep voice and he was just wonderful. They were both really wonderful, but he sort of basked in the love that my grandmother experienced. I have lots of images of him kind of standing in the background with his hands in his pockets, observing us swarming our grandmother and being on her lap. I loved hearing my grandfather speak because his voice was so deep and rumbling and he called us granddaughter. You know, he often referred to his daughters as daughter and his sons as son. I just loved hearing him bestow those titles on his family. They lived in Winnipeg during my lifetime and going to visit them was a highlight of every year. And you would do that? Your whole family would gather up and go and visit? Yeah, we didn't all always cross paths frequently. So I have something like 36, I think, first cousins. And it wasn't too often that all the cousins were in Winnipeg at once, but very often many of us were. Two of my mom's sisters, so three of the Smith girls lived in Calgary, and one of their sisters remained in Winnipeg. The three Smith sisters would often plan their holidays, so we would all be there at the same time. And often, my mom's brothers, who by that time were mostly living in Vancouver and Saskatoon, would plan that as well. So yes, every year, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, we would drive across the prairies to Winnipeg, and that included in the winter holidays. When I was a young woman and working, I would often fly myself out to Winnipeg to see my grandparents who by then were, you know, my grandma wasn't well and I knew I might not have lots of time left with her. So yeah, every chance I could get, I wanted to see them. Of course they would visit us in Calgary too. So was this the grandparents who your grandmother was dark skin and your grandfather was light skin? That's right. Okay. And can you share the story of thinking that your light skin maternal grandfather was white and that your dark skin grandmother was black? And then your journey of learning about and coming to a fuller understanding of Jim Crow and racism, all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Pouring Down Rain, I talk about how at around about the age of six or so, six or seven, I asked my mom why grandma was black and grandpa was white. Or maybe I just asked her why grandpa was white. And she, you know, said, oh, no, no. 
grandpa's not white and i said no yes he is you're mistaken mother <laughs> went and got the photograph of them that was in our china cabinet in, in our house in Bowness and said you know see right here here's the evidence and she she talked about how he was a light-skinned black man and how that was kind of a plague for him how he would sometimes be mistaken for white except he had very African hair and it was common for men at that time to wear hats so he would often take off his hat before entering a space so that people would know he was black and he ran into that situation that light-skinned black people run into which is they hear the extent of white people's racism when they think no one in the vicinity to hear them is black I don't know if you've read the book in called Negro which no. is about exactly that it's a good book I recommend it it's about black people who went underground in the civil rights movement light-skinned black people it was through hearing those stories of why my grandparents did not like to go back to the States even to visit. They had lots of family there. I do not remember my grandfather going back for visits in my lifetime because of experiences he had when they went there, which is that people wouldn't serve them in restaurants if he was with my grandma or they wouldn't serve him at once he had taken his hat off and that kind of thing. And he just said, I'm just so so done with that and and wouldn't go back I think my grandma went back a few times to visit her sisters but then eventually also just didn't have any interest in going back south so it was through that experience of asking my mother about the difference in my grandparents skin tone that she started to tell me about Jim Crow and what they referred to often as the color line at that time stories of black people experiencing discrimination in their everyday lives by being forced to ride on the back of buses and that kind of thing, which was horrifying. It was horrifying to hear those stories. Of course, we also experienced our own Canadian version of racism. But to me, the notion that someone would actually tell you or, or that there would actually be a sign on a bus that said, you have to sit back here, that just seemed so outrageous to a person of my age at that time, you know, a young child, and that people in the world could judge my grandmother, for example, as a person not worthy of sitting wherever she wanted on a bus or drinking from a fountain. That also struck me as ludicrous, mm -hmm. that the best human being in the world could be treated in that way. So then I had the process of that glow that many black Canadians had or certainly in my family around Canada because they didn't talk too much about the experience of racism that they had when they came I had to go back as a young researcher and as a young person and say okay wait a minute it wasn't all daisies and lilies up here either it was a process coming to grips with how awful it was for them down there and fully understanding why they felt they had to go somewhere. But then the sorrow of realizing what they faced when they came here, that was crushing for me because that aspect of our experience here just wasn't allowed in for many years. I know other families did talk about it openly. It's just that mine didn't. The first time I saw that document that Wilfred Laurier brought to that order in council that he wrote up 
the deemed unsuitable document in which, and, and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it, so I won't go into much detail, but the first time I saw that, I wept. I just, it was just so unexpected. I just didn't think that things like that had happened in Canada. And I was at that time, I was maybe 18, 19, 20, 21, something like that. It was pretty devastating. Well, I first heard about it a couple of months ago, or maybe last year. I'm not really sure when I first became aware of it. I started thinking about coming out West and gathering stories. I was absolutely shocked. I shouldn't be, but I was really shocked to see that, that the government actually said, too many Black people are coming, let's stop them from coming. Yeah. And we just didn't have access to those kinds of stories. Well, nobody, nobody in Canada has had access to those kinds of stories. I didn't know that Africans had been enslaved in Canada again until I was in my late teens, early 20s. I just didn't know. That's really unfortunate because many aspects of our story and our journey here are really triumphant and beautiful, but that we didn't get the full story or that we didn't feel comfortable talking about it or that people didn't want to talk about it because they were afraid. They were afraid of what anger might be visited upon them if they did talk about it. That's unfortunate. Incomplete stories are so, so dangerous in the long run. It is so dangerous to tell one quarter of a story or half of the story because when people find out the truth, they're very angry. It's like so many people not having listened to Indigenous people tell us that those bodies were buried when we find out the horrific history of the so-called residential schools that creates a complete lack of trust in the whole story, as it should. Half stories, one quarter stories, or glossed over stories are really harmful. I feel really cheated. You know, as a young Black girl growing up in Nova Scotia, I didn't know hardly anything about my story. I didn't know that my grandfather was a member of the number two construction battalion, the battalion that the apology was just made to. When I think about myself as a young girl, if I'd known that story, if I'd known anything about the amazing things that Black people did, what they went through to come here, what life was like for them, that would have made such a difference to me uh, thinking about myself as a Black person. Yes, absolutely. The other thing is that there are so many connections between all of our stories in Canada. Winnipeg is kind of a, in some ways, a center of the multiple Black migrations. I can't tell you how many people I know including cousins of mine, whose mom was from Nova Scotia, from the Nova Scotia of the 1700s and the early 1800s, that Black migration. And their dad, for example, is from the Prairie migration. Or people who, you know, one parent was from the Underground Railroad community in Southern Ontario, and their parents are from the BC migration, or, you know, that Salt Spring Island Black migration. There are so many connections between our communities. And I think those are incredible stories too that we don't often get to talk about. I just take delight in talking to Nova Scotia people because we often have so many relatives in common. Or like the story of the number two battalion. You're familiar, I think, with some of my work about John Ware. And of course, two of his sons were also in the number two construction battalion. So We always have lots of connections and these conversations are wonderful. I just learned that about John Ware's sons. 
that they were part of the number two construction. There's something about it. When I think about my grandfather, my paternal grandfather being there and think, oh, maybe, maybe he had an interaction with John Ware's son. Yeah. Who knows? We'll yeah. never know. Yeah. That. That's the fun of being a, both a person interested in history, but also a playwright and you know a filmmaker, because I can make up those stories. I could put your grandfather. Did you say it was your grandfather or your great grandfather? Yes, my paternal grandfather. Yeah, your paternal grandfather. I could put him in a story with Arthur and William Ware. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love the idea of that. We'll come back and talk about this some more. And I want to talk about John Ware. But can you tell us about your aunt Edie and your uncle Andrew, mm-hmm. where they were born, what their lives were like, what community meant to them and what they passed on to you about community? Mm-hmm. So Aunt Edie was my mother's older sister. My mom had Ethel, Edith, Pearl, and Pauline. And my mom is Pauline, one of the twins, Pearl and Pauline. Aunt Ethel was the sister who stayed in Winnipeg. And Aunt Edie was the sister who was their, I guess, substitute mother figure when they were in Calgary. Because my mom first came to Calgary to do her grade 11. So they were pretty young. The twins were pretty young when they came here. By that time, Aunt Edie had met Uncle Andrew. So Aunt Edie was born in Lashburn, Saskatchewan, which is near Maidstone, Saskatchewan, which is probably the closest small community to the Eldon District, we call it, where the Saskatchewan people settled. So she was from the Saskatchewan piece of the Black Migration of 1910, and Uncle Andrew was from the Campsie piece of the Black Migration of 1910. The Campsie settlement was not as large or as well known as Amber Valley. It was not a Black-only community. It was more of a mixed community. He was born at Campsie in 1917. So he, both of them were part of the first generation of children born in Canada out of that migration. And Uncle Andrew also had very close ties to the Amber Valley community because as a young minister, He preached for a little while at Amber Valley, and so many of our relatives, both from Saskatchewan and from Campsie, married Amber Valley people. He, as a young preacher, came to Calgary to hold some special meetings in 1940, was it 1946? Must have been just after the war. Dear listeners, please do not quote me on the date. I know I wrote it in an article and I know it, but circa 1946, he had come to Calgary to hold some special church services. And Aunt Edie was living here at that time, working in one of the famous chicken restaurants, one of the two famous chicken restaurants we had in Calgary. There was the Chicken Inn and the Chicken Fry. And Aunt Edie had at various times worked at both. So I don't know if if at that time she was working at the Fry or the Inn. But the community heard about this young Black preacher who had come to hold special meetings. And of course, the Black community turned out in droves to support these services. He was supposed to just stay temporarily, but they met and fell in love and got married in Calgary and stayed here for the rest of their lives. In terms of community building, been really interesting for me to find old Calgary Herald newspaper articles about Uncle Andrew's work as an activist because I didn't really think of him in that way. He was so focused on his faith when I knew him that I didn't see this other kind of more radical 
side of him where he was very outspoken about racism and worked with other racialized communities to keep the subject in the open, to not sweep it under the rug. I found several articles about their work together as a team. They were very much a team to try to make Calgary a good place for Black people to live in and for other racialized communities and their belief that if things were better for us, just by design, things were better for everybody. They weren't saying, hey, everybody, you know, get on our team and then things will be better for you too. But they did understand that working within our own communities to make things better promoted a healthy society and that a healthy society is better for everyone. Their main focus was on feeding people and loving people and creating spaces of joy. So Uncle Andrew was sort of an old school Black preacher, and many of the cadences of his preaching are very familiar to people who are from the South. He also started what's called camp meeting up at Newbrook, Alberta, and it was only much later on in my research after he had died that I realized camp meeting is what enslaved people called their secret meetings that they gathered in the bush when they were all still enslaved to plan escape. So that he named it camp meeting was to me seemed like it was significant. And I was so sorry that I hadn't been able to ask him about that. Mm -hmm. The conversations I did have with him, some of which I recorded, thank goodness, were so illuminating as he talked about the racism that people experienced, the segregation of schools. He was a witness as a child to a really awful incident of anti-Black racism that took place at the school in Campsie and that still has resonance today, I think, according to some people I know who are descendants of the Campsie community. He was pretty savvy and he shared lots of stories with me about what life was like up in Campsie and about his parents and how they held salons, he called them, where people gathered and put on plays and stuff and, and talked about books. And, and so that creation of those spaces of joy was very much a part of Aunt Edie and Uncle Andrew's community building. Their food was off the charts. <laughs> At Aunt Edie's funeral, my brother Darcy, in his eulogy, a bunch of us spoke about what she had meant to us. And he said, I'm just going to say this. She was the best cook in Canada. <laughs> and everybody in the room erupted. In, yeah! <laughs> yeah, she was an amazing cook. And he was her sous chef. He was a big, powerful, very handsome man with very African features. And I just remember him with his flowery apron. And I just love that image of him not caring about that stereotype of does a manly man wear a flowery apron. <laughs> I, I, I loved his ignoring of some of the strictures on gender that were quite common. He also cried easily. He had a heart that deeply felt people's pain and sorrow. He laughed easily. I remember his cackle, but I also remember his tears. Both were very much a part of him. They fed everybody who wanted to come every Sunday for decades. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people, like just the hours that they put into the meals that were brilliant. And then I don't know if you've read my article that's on the Black on the Prairies yes. website about them, but yes, their garden. And that I 
I asked my cousin Philip recently, like, did that food come from the garden? Like, because the, the greens and the potatoes and all those things, the carrots and everything, you know, had to come from somewhere. And Philip said, yeah, but not just that garden that you saw in the backyard, which was beautiful, but two huge plots on the outskirts of the city that the Risby family harvested every week, twice a week, you know, that they tended and cared for. Just that alone, just telling you that alone tells you how much love there was in the hearts of those two people. That's a lot and of work. A lot of work. I went out and watered my plants on my front deck this morning and really felt I'd put in some work there. <laughs> they love to laugh and they love to tell stories. And I'm so grateful that I have so many of their stories that I can dig into. This has been part one of my conversation with Cheryl Fogel. While doing this project, I've come to learn the importance of us hearing the full story of what the journeys of Black folks to this country was like and what life was like once they got here. And listening to Cheryl talk about her grandparents and her Aunt Edie and her Uncle Andrew gives us a beautiful snapshot into the lives loves and community that black people built and nourished here in this country. Join me in three weeks on Monday, March the 6th, when I continue my conversation with Cheryl and she shares more about her family, her experiences of growing up black in Calgary, Alberta, and the work she has created to educate us about and celebrate the life of John and Mildred Ware. Thank you for tuning in.